That's a temptation I could not resist. <laughs> have to be done by 12. Okay. If on his way to the office, Bill Gates accidentally dropped a $1,000 bill, it would not be worth his time to stoop down and pick it up. It would not be worth his time. Being that Bill Gates is worth somewhere between 50 and $100 billion, depending on how his company does, if you take that number and spread it out over the years he's worked, and you assume a 12-hour workday each day for the last 28 to 30 years, he earns about $75 million per week, which means he makes about a $1 million an hour which works down to roughly $300 per second. So it would not be worth his time to stop, bend down, and take the four seconds it would take to put that $1,000 bill back in his pocket. That's a $1 bill, by the way. Okay? It would not be worth his time. It would be better if he just got to work four seconds earlier and made the money that way. And guess what? Bill Gates is number five on the all-time wealthiest list. Number five. If you convert their earnings to modern-day numbers, number four is John Jacob Astor, the fur trader. Died in 1848. He was worth estimated $85 billion in today's currency. Number three on the list, Cornelius Vanderbilt, steamship and railroad builder. Died worth an estimated $100 billion in today's currency. Number two, Andrew Carnegie died in 1919. He was worth just a little bit more, $110 billion. Anybody know who number one is? Rockefeller. John D. Rockefeller, Standard Oil Company, died just before World War II and had accumulated a net worth of somewhere close to $200 billion. Now that'd make a nice children's building. But you know what those last four guys had in common? Besides being rich, they all lost their fortunes. They all lost their fortunes. In fact, Rockefeller lost every penny of his $200 billion fortune. And they all lost it the same way. They died. They died. None of them took even one dime with them into the next life. They all died and they left all their money behind. And you know what? The same is going to happen to Bill Gates and the same is going to happen to every one of us. We're all going to die and we're going to leave all of it behind. Nobody gets to attach the U-Haul to their hearse, do they? You leave it all behind. No matter how much we make in this life, we leave it all. And I, and I think we pretty much accept this. I think that when I say that, that's not a surprise. I don't think I would get anybody to disagree with me on that. We understand that. This is, this is common sense. Does, does anyone in here believe that if they store their coffin with money, they'll get to have it in the next life? I, I would be surprised if I got a hand. We understand this. This is common sense. Or is it? Or is it common sense? Because... I don't know about you, but when you look around, does it seem like this is common sense? Does it seem like people really live having grasped this truth that I take nothing with me to the next life? It doesn't seem like we've grasped that truth. It seems like we've bought in to the the famous t-shirt slogan, he who dies with the most toys wins. And the church, we hear that, and we immediately know that's wrong. Our immediate response is, that is not the way to live. That slogan is wrong. And yet, even though in our heads, we know that that's not the way to live, even though we know we don't take it with us, we end up living that way. We end up pursuing earthly things, material things. And yet, we take none of it with us when we die. Zero. And you may think, well, that's not much of a struggle for me. I don't have that much. The fact of the matter is, everyone, everyone in this room, no matter how poor you think you are, all of us are rich. We're so rich just being here in Burbank, California. 
Just being in the United States of America in the 21st century, we are rich. Did you know that more than half the world's population, more than half the world's population lives on less than $2 a day? That's $2 a day. That's more than half the world's population. We are rich. We have cars. We have homes. We have possessions. We have plenty of food. There's no lack in what we have. And we live in one of the most affluent cultures in the world. And guess what? We live at a time in history when we have more at our disposal than any other time. More than ever, we need to hear Jesus' words when he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and thieves do not break in and steal. If anyone in history needed these words, we do. If anyone in the world needs to hear these words, we do. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. Turn with me to Matthew 6:19. In Matthew 6:19, we've caught Jesus in the middle of one of his most famous sermons. You guys have probably heard of it, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 make up this great sermon. And here Jesus is instructing his disciples and the multitudes on something called the kingdom of God. This kingdom of God. And when you think about the kingdom of God, you should think about a king who rules and reigns over the people. When you think about the kingdom of God, you might think about fortresses and conquering enemies and defending the people. And indeed, many of the people who were listening to Jesus would have been thinking that very thing. If you talked about the coming of God's kingdom, they would have expected a military victory, an immense fortress. They would have pictured a king on a throne who rules over the nations. And they would have thought about that because they were Jews. And the Old Testament prophesies about that. It talks about victory for the chosen people of God. It speaks of a time when they will reign over their enemies. The Old Testament, which the Jews cherished, speaks of a coming king, a Messiah, a Christ who would come and bring in the fullness of this kingdom of God. And these Jews, they hoped for this, like, like, like you would. You, you hoped for the time when the king would come and institute the kingdom and you would reign. And they hoped for the coming of the king who would place their enemies under their feet. And you know what Matthew says in the first four chapters of his gospel? He's here. The king is here. He came The king has come to earth. He came. His name is Jesus. So we call him Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the king, the coming king. He is the one to deliver God's people. And you can see the rejoicing in their hearts as it begins. Okay, the king is here. The kingdom is coming. And okay, and here's the king. And he's going to preach to us a sermon on the sermon on this mount that we're sitting. He's going to preach to us the Sermon on the Mount as we know it now. And there might have been excitement until he said these first words of his sermon. Happy are the humble people. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are the gentle. Happy are those who forgive. Happy are those who make peace. Happy are those who have been persecuted Wait a minute, Jesus. We're we're here to hear about the kingdom. That's that's nice what you said about humble people, but we want to know when you're going to take over the Roman government and when you're going to restore us to our rightful place as your people. Can you speak to that a little bit? And I can almost hear Jesus saying, people... What good is it to talk about the kingdom if you're not going to be in it? You see, the sermon that Jesus delivers is all about people who are in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, they tell us about the type of people who are God's people. 
It describes what they look like. It tells us what they desire, what they do, how they respond to certain situations. It talks about people who take very seriously sin, such as anger, lust, lying. It talks about people who are faithful to their spouses, who keep their word, people who give themselves up for others. It talks about people who love even their enemies. It talks about people who do good deeds just to be seen by God. These are the citizens in God's kingdom. These are the kingdom citizens. Jesus knows that it's no use talking about the details about his kingdom. He is the king. Those things will happen, but it's no use talking about the details if you're not a citizen in the kingdom. It's no use at all. And a lot of those Jews, especially the Pharisees, you guys know about the Pharisees, the religious elite, top-notch on the religious chain. These Pharisees, these, these Jews, they thought they were the citizens of God's kingdom, indeed his best citizens. But they were wrong. They weren't citizens at all. And there were a lot of Jews, however, who were citizens of God's kingdom, but they didn't get it. They didn't understand how to live, and they needed to change. And there may be some of you this morning who think you are citizens in God's kingdom, but you're wrong. You think you're citizens in God's kingdom, but you're wrong. And there may be some who are citizens in God's kingdom, but you need to change. You need to change. Perhaps you need to change in the way you spend and pursue money. Because the way you spend your money tells a lot about your devotion to the king. What you do with this tells a lot about this. So let's read together Matthew six nineteen to 24. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. In this passage, Jesus uses three comparisons to show that the heart of the kingdom citizen, the heart of the kingdom citizen must be devoted to God and not wealth. The first comparison is between two treasures. Look in verse 19. Two treasures. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. That is a command. That is an imperative And that is a present tense command, which means it's ongoing. It's it's not a one-time deal. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. To store up is literally to treasure up. It's the same word as treasure, to treasure up treasures. Don't do it. Don't gather them up. Don't store them up. Most people in Jesus' society back in that day, if they had a treasure, they would take it, put it in a box, and bury it in their floor, in their house. That was how you stored up treasure. That's how you kept it. And Jesus tells us why in verse 19. It's pretty straightforward. If you were storing up treasure, a lot of times back then you might store it up in the form of articles of clothing, buy some beautiful linens and you store them up and this is your treasure. Well, come back a a few years later and all of a sudden the moths have eaten right through it. What you thought you had is now destroyed. It's gone. So you say, well, I'm going to store up money then. I'm not going to risk it with the linen. So I've got maybe coins, silver, metals, some precious metals. I'm going to store those up. So you put those away. Come back years later. Rust has just eaten through it, ruined it. And if you get through those two, you still have to deal with thieves. Because back then, especially, the houses were made out of mud bricks. A thief could literally dig through your wall into your house and then dig up your treasure. So you could have it stolen. But, but that's, 
that's not what Jesus' main point is. His main point isn't how to avoid having your treasure destroyed. His main point is all the earthly treasure, all of it, is temporary. It's temporary. It doesn't last. You don't take it with you. And even if you avoid the moss, the rust, the thieves, you'll eventually lose all your treasure to the ultimate burglar of all time, death, who takes it all from us. Like Randy Alcorn says, either it leaves us while we live or we leave it when we die. No exceptions. Or like Solomon laments in Ecclesiastes 2, Solomon who would make those top five guys look silly with his riches. He says this, Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. For I must leave it. I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor. He he understood this. Why would I store up treasures on earth? And Solomon would say that is vanity. That's foolishness. Because I'm just going to leave it all behind. Don't store up treasures on earth because you leave it all behind. And turn with me to Luke 12, verse 13. There's a great example of this in Luke 12, a couple books over. Verse 13, here in this passage, Jesus is confronting greed and covetousness, and he does so by using a parable. So Luke 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, as you know, Jesus would preach to the crowds and somebody spoke up and said, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. He obviously thought Jesus had a level of authority and he could solve this problem in the family. But Jesus said to a man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then Jesus said to him, beware. And be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And then listen to this parable. The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Look what God says to him. Verse 20. You fool. You fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man. Here's the point of the parable. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This man was a fool. Now, from a worldly standpoint, he was very successful. Business was going very well, so well that he had to actually build bigger barns to hold all of his harvest. But in God's eyes, he was a fool because he was devoting all his energy to storing up treasure for himself here on earth. You see, Jesus' command is a command to be wise. When he says, don't store up treasure on earth, it's basically saying, don't be a fool, but be wise. And it's interesting how Christ says it. He doesn't say, don't be rich. In fact, he tells us how to be rich beyond our wildest dreams or anybody's wildest dreams. You want to be so rich, then listen to what I'm going to say. You want to know the secret to the greatest investment with the largest return, absolutely guaranteed, not for 30 years, but for 30 million years. You want to know the secret to that? Well, then look at verse 20, back in Matthew 6. If you want to know the secret to being rich, Matthew 6, 20 tells us, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Because you see, in heaven... Neither moth nor rust destroy. And thieves do not break in or steal. Treasure in heaven lasts forever. Moss can't eat through it. Rust can't ruin it. Thieves can't steal it. Hurricanes can't sweep it away. It lasts forever. Now this is wisdom. 
This is smart. This is strategic. It's this kind of riches that we want. This is the ultimate long-term blessing. Financial planners will tell you, don't just think three months ahead or three years ahead. Think 30 years ahead. Plan 30 years down the road. Well, how about 30 million years ahead? How about that kind of planning? How about an investment that pays off 30 million years from now? That'd be a wise investment. So how can I invest that way? How can I store up treasures in heaven? That's the question, isn't it? Okay, I don't want to be a fool. I don't want to be like that man who died with nothing, who was not rich toward God. I want to store up treasure in heaven. How can I obey Jesus' command and be a faithful kingdom citizen? Well, I want you to know the Bible talks about this a lot. And there are a lot of passages you could go to. And what I did is I gave you a few in your bulletin insert. So if you pull this thing out and you look at the back side, there's a little grid there that you can use later. And that's just a start. That's just to kind of launch you into the study of how do you store up treasures in heaven? There are many ways to do it. And I've just listed a few there. You can cross-reference those verses and keep going. But I want to just mention a few. I, I, I read one earlier in Luke 12, 33, when we did the giving. Sell your possessions and give to charity. There's one way to do it. Sell your possessions and give to charity. And guess what? You'll make for yourself a money belt which does not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. And all you got to do, sell your possessions and give to charity. This amazes me how God set this up. Doesn't it, isn't it amazing? Because think about this thing right here. This is, this is given to me from God. It's all his. It's all a gift from him. And I'm his steward over it, but it's not mine, it's his. And, but somehow, in the way his plan works, I can take this that was given to me that's not even mine, I can give it away to somebody, and, and assuming I do it with the right heart, I can give it away with, to somebody and I get treasure in heaven. I get an everlasting treasure in heaven. I get something that will make this look silly. That's amazing the way God works. He gives it. We give what's not even ours away and we get the reward for it. It's that simple. It's easy to store up treasure in heaven. You don't have to be a financial genius. You don't even have to have passed economics. All you have to do is sell your possessions and give to charity. That's one way to store up treasure in heaven. But I want to highlight the most important way. There's others. You can go through that list of verses later. There's lots of different ways to store up treasure in heaven. The Sermon on the Mount as a whole lists a bunch of different things you can do to store up treasure in heaven, be rich toward God. But I want to show you the most important way. Turn to 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, towards the back. There is another way to store up treasure in heaven, a treasure greater than all the others. A treasure that makes all the other treasures possible. Because you don't get treasure in heaven if you don't go to heaven. Right? You don't get rich in God's kingdom if you're not there. And 1 Peter 1 tells us how to get there and tells us what we get when we get there. Look at verse 3, 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, and catch this, this is Solus Christus right here, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It all happens through Jesus. God causes us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Look at verse 4. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for, and I love it when he says you. It's for you. Reserves it in heaven for you. This is your inheritance. Riches beyond anything you can imagine. And it, It happens just through Christ, through being born again by the Father, through the resurrection of the Son. When you embrace Christ, when you commit your life 
wholeheartedly to Him, when you repent of your ways and you embrace His ways, when you do that, you walk into a treasure that is unimaginable. Now that's, that's treasure. That's a treasure worth selling everything we have to go by the field where it's buried. That's a treasure. And it's all through Christ alone. It's only through the man who is preaching these words in Matthew 6. It's only through Jesus Christ, the one who spoke the words, do not store up for yourselves treasures in earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That's the man that we get to the greatest treasure of all time. We get to it through him. I think of Jim Elliott's words. You guys familiar with his famous quote? I've always thought of it in terms of salvation, but it works great here. Jim Elliott said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, Jack was sitting in the first service, came up to me midway and said, You know what? That wasn't Jim Elliott's words. I was shocked. I've quoted Jim Elliott on that many times. He read it, Jack said he read it in Thomas Watson, who wrote, you know, three or four hundred years before. And he said that Thomas Watson was quoting Augustine, which is way back. And who knows where Augustine got it from? (laughs) But those are the words and they fit. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Why would we spend our lives on treasure we can't keep? We can't keep this. Can't keep it. But we can give it up for treasure that we'll never lose. What would cause me to make such a foolish decision as to pour my life into this? Storing up treasures on earth. What would, make, what would cause me to make such a decision? Why would I devote my life to what is temporary and fleeting? That's the question we have to answer. Why? Why when we look around... Even though it's common sense, even though we know, we don't take this with us. I leave it all behind, every penny, even though we know that. Why don't we devote our lives? Why do we devote our lives to it? That's the question. And Jesus answers the question in verses 21 to 23. He's compared two treasures, and now he compares two desires. It comes down to a matter of desire. Look at verse 21. We're back in Matthew 6. Verse 21 makes an incredible connection for us. It says, For where your treasure is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Christ draws a connection between where we store up our treasures and our hearts our passions, our desires. They're connected. You devote your heart and your life and your attention and your affection, you devote that to where your treasure is. If you spend your time and energy storing up treasure on earth, then guess what? Your heart will be devoted that way. Your treasure and your heart go hand in hand. And again, I I think we understand this. I mean, picture this. Picture somebody coming by today, this afternoon, and they, they give you a gift. You say, you know what? Here's $10,000. Be wise with it. They give you the $10,000, and you say, okay, I want to be wise. I want to be a good steward. I want to use this money wisely, so I'm going to invest it. And uh, you think, okay, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invest in the stock market. I've always wanted to get into the stock market. I've never been able to. So I'm going to invest it. And you think, and I, and I, I like to drink Coca-Cola. So that's it. Coke, Coke gets it all, 10000 now all of a sudden something's changed. You pick up the newspaper in the morning and, and, and you're going to go to the business section or you're going to go to the money section. You're going to be interested to see what's going on with Coke. You might jump on the internet and, and just research and see a little bit about the company. See how they're doing. Maybe get their quarterly reports. Find out how your investment's doing. See, you've put a lot of stock in Coca-Cola. And so now you're interested in it. Your affections and your heart are drawn toward it. Your attention goes that way. It's like anything that you buy, your attention goes that way. 
There's this inseparable link, and that's what, that's what Jesus is saying right now. And I'm not saying it's sinful to buy Coca-Cola stock. Because Coke's better than Pepsi, anyhow. But I am saying this. There's a link. That's all Jesus is saying. There's a link between your treasure and your heart. Okay? There's a link. It's the same way on, on the flip side. Let's say you decide to take that $10,000 that you've been given. You say, you know what? I'm going to pour that into the building fund. I'm going to support the building fund. Now, all of a sudden, you're a little more interested in how the building project's going. All of a sudden, you care a little bit more. You, you want to want to find out. Maybe you go to one of those monthly meetings. Maybe you, you check things out. You want to see how it's going. You're invested because you've put money into it. You're, you've put your treasure into it. And so now your heart and your affections are drawn that way. There's that inseparable link. There's a connection. Now, Jesus, having made the connection between treasures and your heart, now he paints us a picture in verses 22 to 23. He makes his point again by painting us a picture. And it's kind of a tricky picture. So, so stay with me here, and I think, I think we'll see what his main point is through this illustration. Look at verse 22. It says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So you might be thinking, what in the world does that have to do with money, treasures? Why is he talking about that? What has a lot to do with it? And it helps us to remember where it's at. It's squeezed right in the context. It's squeezed right in between verse 21, talking about treasure and heart. And then verse 24, which talks about God and wealth. We're talking about wealth here. We're talking about heart issues. And so as we go through and look at this illustration, keep that in mind. Let's start with the very first part. The eye is the lamp of the body. The eye is the lamp of the body. Okay, what does that mean? Your eye is the lamp of the body. Well, you have to ask, well, what does a lamp do? A lamp sheds light for the household. A lamp, when you turn it on, it brings in light. It's helpful and necessary. It illuminates the household so that everybody can see. It's a benefit for everyone. It has a huge effect on the household. And that's how an eye works too. Your eye brings in light for the body so that it can prosper, so that it can know where it's going. The eye brings in light so it's helpful. It's necessary. If your eye is good, which is what Jesus deals with first, if your eye is good, then guess what? The rest of your body functions properly. You know where to go. You can dodge obstacles. You can get from point A to point B. But if your eye is bad, then you can't. You can't see where you're going. You you can't dodge obstacles. You can't get from point A to point B. Your whole body is affected by your eye. And I had a... I had a living proof of this illustration in my life this week. Tuesday comes along. I wake up in the morning, Tuesday morning, and my eye is just running water. It's red and swollen. It's bugging me. And so I'm going to work, and, and I'm here in the office, and I'm trying to study and get ready for the sermon. And, and it's just it's really bugging me. It's getting worse and worse, and I can barely see. And, and pretty soon it gets around lunchtime, and it's just it's terrible. I mean, I, it is affecting everything I'm doing. I can't focus. I can't even really see what I'm doing. It hurts to read. And so I try to make it home. And I live three miles from here. I'm driving, but the light is so bad that I I can hardly even drive home. I had to stop on the side of the road a couple of times. So because my eye was blurred, because my eye was sick, infected, my whole body was affected. All of a sudden, what was a very normal thing for me, sitting in my office, reading, going home, was affected. The rest of the night, I had to lay in bed with the lights off just because of my eye. Well, that's what Jesus is saying here. When the eye's bad, everything's bad. When the eye's good, everything's good. But Jesus is not talking about the eye here. You know that. This is not about an eye. He's not giving us a lesson in, in ophthalmology. Is he, he's, telling us, he's telling us about the heart. He's talking about the eye so that he can address the heart of the issue. He just talked about it in verse 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. Here's a picture to describe that. The eye here stands for the heart. 
Just as the eye brings light to your body and guides your body, the heart guides your actions and your lifestyle. There's an inseparable link between those two. If your heart is diseased and dark and blurred, guess what? Your actions follow. The decisions you make with your money, let's bring it back here to money. This is the context. The decisions you make with your money will reflect that. If your heart is sick, if it is devoted to storing up treasures on earth, then it will show in your life. It will show. You'll be able to see it in your actions. But if your eye is clear, if it's healthy, the decisions that you make with your money will reflect that. If your heart is healthy, if it is devoted to storing up treasures in heaven, then that will show in your life. You will see that in your actions. The main point is this. Your heart will be reflected in your lifestyle. And let's bring it into the context of money because that's what Jesus is talking about here. Your heart will be reflected in your spending and how you spend this thing right here. Your heart will be reflected in what you do with this. Jesus says that the difference between a person who devotes his life to treasure on earth and devotes his life to treasure on heaven, the difference is between a sick heart and a healthy heart. So how is your heart? How is your heart? Is it devoted to treasures on earth? Or is it devoted to treasure in heaven? Or do you try to get the best of both worlds? You try to get the best of both worlds. You try to have your cake and eat it too. Which leads us to the last comparison between two masters. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot serve God and wealth. To be devoted means to hold fast, kind of like super glue, tight association. You're going to be devoted. You're going to be tightly associated with one master. And when you're devoted to that one master, you're going to simultaneously be despising the other master. You're not going to be able to hold glue here and glue here. They're two different masters. So as you hold tightly to one, you're going to be despising the others. And the the word despise here is the same word Jesus used in Hebrews 12, 3, when he said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. When Jesus endured the cross, he despised the shame, the shame of being up there on the cross, the shame of being mocked, spit on. He despised it. He didn't value it. He didn't care about the shame. He didn't care what the men thought or the people were spitting on him. He didn't care about it. That's what it means to despise it. So he went through with the cross. And that's what it is here. You're going to despise one of those masters. You're not going to care. You're not going to value. If money is your master, then God won't mean much to you. You may pay him lip service, Pharisees paid him a lot of lip service. But your allegiance is elsewhere. And you have to ask, does he mean a lot to you? Do you spend your time on God? Do you spend your time with him in prayer, in the word, learning about him, conversing with him like you would with a best friend? Does he mean something to you? Is he valuable to you? Are you devoted to him? Is he your master? If God is your master, then simultaneously money won't mean much to you. It won't be valuable to you. You'll despise it. That's what it says in verse 24. You will be devoted to one. You will despise the other. And there are no exceptions. No one can serve two masters. No one. So does your lifestyle prove that God is your master. You remember that picture that Jesus gave for us of the eye? Your lifestyle is linked with your heart. 
He's building off of that. He said it in verse 21, where your treasure is there, your heart is. If there's a link here, does your lifestyle show that God is your master? Or does your lifestyle prove that money is your master? What does your life say? A lot of times we talk about the heart and it's easy just to talk in generalities because say, well, I don't know what my heart is. What about your lifestyle? Jesus made the link. What do you do? I think it would be pretty scary for many of us if I stopped the service right now and said, okay, I want you to pair up with a couple groups around you. I want you to pull out your checkbooks. I want you to see, I want you to show each other where you've been spending your money. Go through the last month. Next week, I want you to bring your visa statements. We're going to go through those for a little bit. Credit card statements. We'll pull those out and just exchange and see where we're at. Then I'm going to hit up Don Chernock and get your giving reports. Okay, I'm going to get everyone's giving reports. We're bringing them next Sunday. And we're just going to, just going to kind of see where the money goes. I, I don't have access to that, but let's say I did. And we said, okay, I'm going to write down all your material possessions. Write them all down. Write their worth. Let's get it all out on paper. Let's just get it out. Now, if you, if you took all of that, would it prove that God is your master? Or would it prove that money is your master? That's where the rubber meets the road, right there. That's a hard statement. But this is what Jesus said. You can't love both masters. You will always end up leaning further away from one and further towards another. You will end up loving one and hating the other. So which master is your heart devoted to? Can you see why this is such an important question? This is such an important question for us because one, Jesus is not just talking about giving. He's talking about kingdom citizens. He's talking about people who are in God's kingdom, people who are saved. That's who he's describing here. So this is an important question to answer. Are you devoted to God or to to money? And secondly, this is such an important question because of where we live. We live in a place that is is so filled with wealth, this community, this state, this, this country, this time, this age in history. We have so much at our fingertips. Just masses of wealth just sitting there. This is the time that we need to consider these statements by Jesus. This, is, this should cause us to take it so seriously. To realize that every person in here is rich and needs to beware and be on guard against making money your master. This is the plague in Burbank. As bad as any other. It's the plague in America which for all, all its good, has produced a generation of people who hardly know the meaning of sacrifice and giving. There's a quote here from Craig Blomberg. It's very good. It says this, Many perceptive observers have sensed that the greatest danger to Western Christianity, that's us, is not, as is sometimes alleged, prevailing ideologies such as Marxism, Islam, the New Age movement, or humanism, but rather the greatest danger to Western Christianity is rather the all-pervasive materialism of our affluent culture. We try so hard to create heaven on earth and to throw in Christianity when convenient as another small addition to the so-called good life. Jesus proclaims that unless we are willing to serve him wholeheartedly in every area of life, but particularly with our material resources, we cannot claim to be serving him at all. End quote. Which master is your heart devoted to? All you have to do is look at your lifestyle to find out. That's the link Jesus made in these verses. Now I know what some of you are thinking. Because I've been thinking the same things for a while now. I don't think it's wrong to have my car. I don't don't think it's wrong to have my house. I don't think it's wrong to spend my money on material possessions. I think you're being legalistic. 
I think you're only given one side of the story. There's a temptation to respond to Jesus' words defensively. There's a temptation. You might be feeling it right now. You might have your fists up, ready to duke it out with me or with Jesus. You might be expecting me to say something like, now I'm not telling you it's wrong to have those things. I'm not telling you to sell your car or move out of your house or buy cheaper clothes or spend less at the salon or get rid of your big screen. I'm not going to tell you any of those things. You might be waiting for me to say something like that, but I can't say it. Maybe you do need to consider some of those things. That's what Jesus is saying. Check your heart. Which master is your heart devoted to? And I know the temptation. The temptation is to start justifying everything we own. We start justifying it. We're tempted to say there's nothing wrong with having that, that car or that, those clothes or, or the way I spend. There's nothing wrong with that. And hey, I give to the church. I probably give a lot more than most people in here. And there's that temptation. There's that defensiveness, defensiveness that wells up. And, I, and I, I felt it in myself as I was going through this. And all I can say is, please, don't give in to it. Don't give in to that temptation. Don't let it grab hold of your heart. Don't let it turn what Jesus is saying and turn you to stone to it and dip further and further into your love of money. Resist the temptation. If you respond to Jesus' words by defending what you have, you've missed his entire sermon. You've missed it. Don't justify your possessions. Instead, hold them with an open hand. Hold them with an open hand. So you have some stuff. Maybe you've worked hard in your business and you, and you, and you have some stuff. I'm not saying that's a blessing or a curse, but you've got some stuff. Maybe it's been given to you. If you take that, you hold it with an open hand. And you ask questions like this. How can I give more to the Lord? How can I give more? Not how can I keep what I have for myself? Like the man who died. And God said, you fool. How can I give more to the Lord? How can I be more devoted? What can I change in my life to make me more devoted? How can I obtain everlasting treasure? This should be the response to Jesus' words. How about this one? What possessions can I give up? Not what possessions can I hold on to and be justified. But what possessions can I give up? Just inventory what you have. You've got stuff. We all have stuff. Which of those possessions can I give up for the Lord? Store up treasure in heaven. What can I do without? How can I, how can I downsize to free me up to give more? These are the questions we should be asking. The answers will be different for each one of us, but these are the questions we need to be asking. Not a defensiveness, not a justification, not making excuses to hold on to our stuff, but a giving it up, open hand. Lord, what do you want me to do with this? How do you want me to use this? Have these possessions stolen your heart? Because there's a link. There's a link between the possessions in your heart and have they stolen it away. You need to be willing to look in the mirror and ask yourself that question. We, as people who are residents, for the most part, in Burbank, in Southern California, we need to look in the mirror and ask that question all the time. Have these possessions stolen away my heart? Have they started to grab my heart and pull me away from my master, God, and pull me towards the master of money? Some of you in this room, God may be calling you to give it all up. Everything you have, God may be calling you to give it all up. Can you hold it all in an open hand? He might send you out to the mission field and say, it's all gone. You're going out there with nothing. You're leaving it all behind. Some of you guys may be called to give half of it up or a quarter. It's different with each person. But what does God want you to do with the possessions you have to be rich toward him? This is not a call to giving. This is a call to Christianity. This is how kingdom citizens live. That's what Jesus is talking about. To love God and not your money. I'll tell you what, and some of you guys know this. Some of you guys could, could speak on this. 
for so long, and, and, and you should, you should tell people about this. But if you start giving, man, it feels so good. It makes you so happy. There is so much joy when you give those things. You see, we're, we're duped by the world. We're deceived by the world. The world comes in and it puts up the billboards and the commercials and it promotes, this will make you happy. Get this and you'll be happy. And oh, now that you got that, get a little bit more. And now you're going to need more. You're going to need this too. Add it on to make you happy. And it's total deception. And it doesn't make you happy. Andrew Carnegie said, millionaires seldom smile. John Rockefeller said, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. John Jacob Astor said, I am the most miserable man on earth. $85 billion. There's a joy in giving. There's a joy in storing up treasure in the heaven that can't compare to the joy of having this thing. The whole Sermon on the Mount started with the word blessed. You know what blessed means? happy this is the happiest road this is the happiest way to live devote it all to god don't hold on to it for yourself let's pray god those are hard words to swallow lord we are surrounded by wealth we are surrounded by money such a temptation there's such a danger in it, Lord, and I just pray that you would grant, grant your flock discernment, that you would make people in here who are not kingdom citizens, kingdom citizens, that people would be storing up treasure where it counts, where they'll have it forever, that they'll experience the joy and the happiness of giving up the earthly to gain the heavenly. Lord, make, make these people radical givers. Make them people who shine as a light in this world, in the city of Burbank, with all its affluence, that we would shine as a light of giving and have no other explanation except we're living for another world where we'll have it forever. God, do that in us this morning, today. In your name, amen.